Welcome to the Marathon Running Podcast. My name is Joe Sell. Before I introduce my guest today, I'm going to take a minute and give a little context because I didn't really do that at the beginning of the interview. And I don't want it to be confusing what we're talking about. So this episode is all about one of the biggest challenges for all marathoners. Whether you're trying to break four hours or running in the Olympics, everyone faces this basic problem. And that is trying not to run out of glycogen during the race. Um, If you've been listening, you know I bring this up a lot and I ask everyone what they think about it. And the question is, can you teach your body to use fat as fuel at higher running intensities so that you can serve more of your glycogen stores and avoid hitting the wall? If you could do this, it would be ideal because you have a virtually unlimited supply of fat available to you for energy. One pound of body fat equals about 3,500 calories. So let's take an extremely lean 140-pound male with uh, 4% body fat. That's 5.6 pounds of fat, which is 19,600 calories. Uh, In theory, that's enough energy for like six marathons. So this huge supply of fuel, this stored fat we all have, is just sitting there, and it goes mostly untapped because, again, we need the sugar to be able to move quicker. And there are lots of competing opinions on this. On this podcast alone, I've asked, I think, every guest this question and gotten a different answer every time. So the opinions and approaches to this are all over the place. Um, But my guest today, his name is Bob Sibahar, is the first person I've heard suggest that, yes, you can become more efficient using fat at higher intensities. And the way you can do it is through not different training regimes, but through your nutrition, how you eat and what you eat, no matter what kind of training you do. So he's a sports dietitian, and for most of his clients, he doesn't even consult on their training at all, just their nutrition. And he's not just a researcher or, you know, working in theory. He actually trains real-life athletes to do this, athletes at the professional and Olympic level, actually. So that's a really long wind-up to start the episode, but I wanted to set up the context for our conversation because... We sort of jump right into the weeds of his methods without a whole lot of background. So now I'm going to read a little bit of Bob's bio, and then I will play back the interview. Bob is former director of sports nutrition for the University of Florida and sport dietitian for the U.S. Olympic Committee. He traveled to the 2008 Olympic Games as a sports dietitian for the U.S. Olympic team and a personal sport dietitian slash exercise physiologist for the Olympic triathlon team. Bob has a bachelor's degree in exercise and sports science, a master's degree in health and exercise science, and a second master's degree in food science and human nutrition. He's a registered dietitian, exercise physiologist, 
NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist and a high performance endurance coach. Bob created the concepts of nutrition, periodization, and metabolic efficiency training in the early 2000s and has worked with 15 different Olympians, including Meb Kaflesgi, and dozens of other professional athletes. He's currently the owner of ENRG Performance, which you can check out at enrgperformance.com. And with that, here is my conversation with Bob Sibahar. I thought uh, you could start us off by giving us a brief overview of your background and how you arrived at the ideas of nutrition, periodization, and metabolic efficiency. Yeah, so I won't bore you with uh, the long story. I'll give you the short story. So my background, I actually have been an athlete my entire life, which kind of propelled me into the career that I'm in as a sport dietitian and exercise physiologist, uh, also a, an endurance coach. But I, you know, I went to undergrad and I got a degree in exercise science, exercise physiology, basically, and worked for three years in the you know real world, I call it, and had a ton of questions just about everything from from physical activity and exercise training nutrition and I just you know I just didn't know where to go to answer my questions, so I actually decided to go back to grad school and I thought that would answer all my questions and of course, it just opened up this slew of more questions and just you know I was trying to plug my professor professors and ask them all about this and doing research and so on and so forth. So anyway, I ended up got out of college with a couple master's degrees, obviously an undergrad degree. Um, I am a registered dietitian, uh, one of the very few males, although there are more of us that are actually being uh, classically trained these days. But, you know, early on, you know, as, as a, as a competitive, so I grew up as a competitive soccer player, right? About, I think it was my sophomore year in undergrad, I got dared to do a triathlon. So that was kind of my endurance uh, awakening, if you will. And, and you know, I'd never really run. I've ne- I had never swam. I'd really, really never biked before. But I, I just found endurance was something very special to me. And at that time, and this was eons ago, right? I'm not going to date myself too much, but not much was known about sport nutrition. So, you know, tr- classically, I was trained, you know, the, the food guide pyramid, high carb, low fat, you know, just the whole thing that actually, unfortunately, is still being taught in in most schools. And, you know, as an endurance athlete then, and now as a practicing sport dietitian, registered dietitian, I started to scratch my head because about six months out of my internship, my dietetic internship, I started, you know, obviously working with more athletes, endurance athletes, and a lot of longer athletes, marathoners, Ironman athletes, who had a lot of gut distress, a lot of blood sugar imbalances, just these crazy things that most of us have experienced. And I thought there might be a better way, right? And, and obviously, this is, I actually, you know, I, I, I birth, if you will, nutrition periodization, more so, so dietitians, athletes, and their coaches could actually talk the same language. So nutrition periodization was really born on just the fact that I wanted everyone to be on the same page when we talked about nutrition for athletes, right? Because coaches were detailing their periodization planning. Athletes, sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't, but they knew coach would take them up and down, higher, low volume and intensity. And then dietitians at that time had no clue because dietitians at that time were just feeding athletes and helping them feed just based on normal recommendations. They weren't looking at high volume, high intensity, or even a taper week or a couple of weeks. So I came in and, and that was my first stamp of, of really putting it on the, the trade. The field was nutrition periodization. And literally about six months after that, 
metabolic efficiency training was born simply because of this. And I love sharing the story. Uh, not only at, at that time had I been training for quite a few Ironman races, right? So I was doing long course and marathons and Ironmans. And at that point, I was finding a lot of athletes who were coming to me were having a lot of GI distress, right? So it could have been bloating or nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, whatever it was. And I had that too, right? And I remember asking a lot of my mentors in the past, I said, well, why is this? Like, I shouldn't be having that. Like, there's something wrong with the gut. And they said, no, 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 nothing wrong with the gut. That's just the rite of passage. Like, when you do longer training, that's what you have to deal with. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't think so. Like, number one, if, if any of your listeners have ever experienced GI distress, you never just want to deal with it, right? It's just, it's horrible. And number two, you know, kind of that, I, I, call myself that that affectionate fish swimming upstream, right? Because I have always gone pretty much against nature uh, in terms of the nutrition field. I've always questioned why, like if we need carbs, why do we need this? If we need fat, why do we need fat? So I think, you know, metabolic efficiency was first born out of just the frustration of helping endurance athletes try to manage their GI distress. So this was, and, and Joe, this is interesting because I was thinking about this before we, we got on today, 2003 was my first official presentation on nutrition periodization and metabolic efficiency training. So if you think about, I mean, that's 17 years, right? <laughs> so, and yeah, that kind of dated me a little bit. But, but that said, since then, I do want to say that metabolic efficiency training is more than just controlling the gut and getting rid of GI distress. There are so many health benefits, so many performance benefits that have actually not come out of the woodwork, but just as I've found in the past 17 years, I found more and more benefits to this obviously coined term, what I call metabolic efficiency training. I'm assuming that's that specific distress you're talking about with athletes was a result of just trying to feed themselves more than they could absorb during an endurance event. Exactly. Number one, it's more than they can absorb because back, you know, back in the days, and even right now, even though we've got a lot of more, lot more science on board, back in the days, it was just, you know, throw as many carbohydrates and simple sugar carbohydrates as you can in the body. Cause, you know, cause back then we thought, okay, well, you're burning carbs. You need to eat as many as possible. The second thing was, you know, not, not only looking at total carbohydrates, but looking at the type of carbohydrates. So a lot of these athletes were literally shoving anything they could in their mouth. So I remember I, cookies, I mean, cakes, I mean, you name it, I've seen it, but they were just trying to get calories and then predominantly more carbohydrates. So back then they didn't really focus on the quality of carbohydrate. There was a little bit of timing, but not as much as we do nowadays. And they just simply didn't care because they just wanted calories coming in their body. From your perspective, how uh, different is your approach to kind of mainstream conventionalism or the mainstream mm -hmm. academic literature out there because mm -hmm. it seems to me just as a as a non-academic and you know looking at popular media and the, just right. conventional wisdom seems to be kind of like you mentioned the food pyramid runners mm -hmm. you know endurance athletes need lots of carbs carbs yep. are the primary yep. preferred fueling source so we need to load up on them literally right. right and before and during an event um so but i would like to get your perspective as someone who is, does the research reads the literature yeah. is in the field it, do you see yourself as kind of cutting a 
cross the grain against the grain of mm-hmm. mainstream literature? And if so, why do you think there's such a big difference between your approach and conventional wisdom? Yeah, I, I think so. So twofold. If if I could break the first question, you know, kind of why I'm doing this, and in, in in you know, am I a fish swimming upstream? Absolutely different than most conventional wisdom. However, here's an interesting point. If you look back five years, 10 years, and 15 years, right? So like I said, I, my, my first official kind of breakout in nutrition periodization and metabolic efficiency training was 17 years ago. If we look back 15 years ago, this was truly a pioneering concept, this metabolic efficiency training. People were looking at me like I was absolutely crazy, even though I had research to support it. I mean, everything is science-based and science evidence-based, right? And so 15 years ago, I was getting the Google eyes, like, you're crazy. And, and the, the only thing that saved me, to be honest with you, was that I was act, I am actually a registered dietitian, right? So that that credential actually held up. So people were starting to scratch their heads and say, maybe he's onto something but they weren't able to adopt it yet, right? So then about 10 years ago, that's when I saw things starting to change. So that's when I actually saw people, researchers, PhD researchers, scientists started to, they started to look a little bit more at this periodization concept because we had never done anything like this. And, and the only reason I brought that in is because my work as an endurance coach and as a strength coach, periodization was second nature to me, right? Uh, but 10 years ago, researchers started to say, maybe there's something about this periodization. Dietitians were still not jumping on the bandwagon at that point because they were, you know, it was the food pyramid still, right? So between five and 10 years ago, that's where tremendous changes in the nutrition field started happening. So we actually started seeing published papers on nutrition periodization, how to fluctuate it and uh, maintain different levels of protein and carbs and fat. That's about, I mean, keto has been around for a while, low carb, high fat, but that's when it started to resurface and really become popular. So that five to 10 year mark was really crucial from now until about five years from now, or, or I'm sorry, five years ago, that is really like this is to me, even though starting a concept, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago is exciting. These past five years has been super exciting because, and this is for me, so many things are changing in, in research. And what I like to do is take what we learn in research and apply it to athletes in real life, right? So look at health, look at performance. The unfortunate part is there is so much out there consumers, athletes are completely confused, right? It seems like we can go in 10 million directions with nutrition plans and nobody knows the right one. And in fact, I would probably argue nutrition plans should be N of one experiment with using some science-based evidence to, to kind of start and pave that path. Okay. Well, let's get into some specifics here, what exactly we're talking about. Um, so something I've heard you use before is the, uh, I don't know what you call, but kind of like the hand model. The hand model, um, yep. Can you yep. kind of describe what that is? Absolutely. So here's, here's a little bit like short background. When I created this metabolic efficiency training concept, I wanted to get away from athletes counting calories, right? So I actually did in, in my first six months after my dietetic internship and becoming an RD and a registered dietitian, this is what they taught you. Like, so when you go through becoming a registered dietitian, it's all about working in a hospital, feeding patients the right amount of food to get them discharged, right? So of course I'm taking that philosophy into an athletic model and it just did not work, right? So it took me about six months to realize that writing meal plans with exact, you know, calories and weighing food for athletes did not work. So 
luckily I, I cut that that short and I wanted to find something that was a little bit more freeing and engaging and, and allowing athletes just to live normal lives. So I, I went back to the research and I actually, this hand model is a really interesting model because it's it, a lot of people when I work with these athletes are like, that seems so easy. It shouldn't work. And I said, well, it, that's why I did it, right? It's very simple. I, I believe simple is sustainable, but it's all based on evidence because what I did was I looked at research in people with diabetes and I did the math. I did the research. I, I, I scoured the research. And basically this hand model represents the volume of food that you should eat in a specific ratio to optimize blood sugar. So again, metabolic efficiency training, the foundation concept that the driving principle is how do we best optimize blood sugar by putting carbohydrate, protein, and fat in our daily nutrition plan, right? The next question is, well, how much? So I know I need those nutrients, but how much? So I went out on a limb and I developed this hand model to get athletes off that ledge, right? Get them out of the diet handcuffs and get them away from counting calories. So the hand model represents one full hand, and that's from your wrist to your fingertips. That full hand, one hand is carbohydrate, and that could be fruits, veggies, um, whole grains, like we could talk about that a little bit later. The other hand is protein. So this is what's interesting is I don't necessarily bring up fat too much because unless an athlete is vegan, if an athlete is not vegan, so if they're actually consuming animal-based protein sources, chicken, fish, steak, you name it, dairy products, the fat that is that they're consuming is actually in their protein sources. So a lot of your listeners might be thinking, well, wait a second, this isn't keto, right? Yes, exactly right. Like I specifically created this metabolic efficiency training concept to not include the word diet. And uh, if you've ever seen any of my work, I have this bell-shaped curve that I utilize to really explain the metabolic efficiency training concept. Inside the bell-shaped curve, which is where most of us should sit, it's all about optimizing blood sugar, right? On the two outskirts or the two outliers, you have keto or severe low-carb, high-fat. And then on the other you have high carb, low fat, right? So it doesn't disregard either of those strategies. It just says most of the of our athletic population is not going to fall in that 2% or 3%. It sounds like the basic concept is a one-to-one -one ratio. Exactly. Using the hands for guides as volume yep. of food. Right. What's the reasoning for the balanced ratio? Yes, yeah. So How does this that is, relate to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, what I was alluding to, sorry for not answering the first question uh, in its entirety. The the the, the research that I did, the and, and I, I should come back, I did not do the research. When I say research mm -hmm. I did, that is is doing literature review and looking through the research. Sure. I'm, I'm not a PhD scientist, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, although I try to put on that every so often. So I was looking at diabetic research and what I found in, in people with diabetes was the ratio of carbohydrate to protein, whenever that was close to one to one, that is when they found optimal blood sugar control in people with diabetes. So basically, blood sugar wasn't a roller coaster, right? And as we all know, if, if, if you know anyone with diabetes, if they do not control their blood sugar very, very well, I mean, bad things will happen, obviously, right? So what I learned in this research was a one-to-one -one ratio, carbohydrate to protein, is ideal. Two hands of carbohydrate to one hand of protein is still pretty darn good for controlling blood sugar three hands of carbohydrate to one hand of protein, you start tipping the scale just a little bit. It's not horrible. It's not like a red light, but you just start really favoring more carbohydrate burning and less fat burning, right? 
once you get right around that four to one, it destroys blood sugar control. And, and mind you, there are maybe times to utilize a four to one, but not in daily nutrition, not in breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. So that is where this whole one-to-one, two-to-one, and three-to-one really came about was from research with people with diabetes. So if we're talking specifically to endurance athletes, and in this case, marathoners, yep. um, the, the foundation here you're saying is, is blood sugar control. Exactly. Can you kind of define what, what I, uh, optimal blood sugar is? is mm-hmm. and why it matters for endurance athletes? Absolutely. Let me, I'll, I'll first play the health card, right? So our blood sugar, it depends on what doctor or physician you see. They, they usually want a blood, like a fasting blood sugar. First thing in the morning, you wake up, if you were to stick your finger and take your blood sugar, or if you wear a, a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, that should be under 99, right? In the nutritional world, we love to have it between 80 to 90, but but here's the thing. When you have low fasting blood sugar, that means your body's pancreas, which is an organ that, that secretes insulin, right? A very important organ. The, the body's pancreas is working well. So from a health perspective, your risk for metabolic disorders, your risk for diabetes is very low. Once that fasting blood sugar gets a little bit higher, like in the hundreds, low hundreds, that's when you're kind of classified as that pre-diabetic state. And I've actually had some athletes come to me in a pre-diabetic state. We've completely reversed that just from dietary interventions with metabolic efficiency training. But so number one, from a health perspective, it is crucial, crucial, crucial to control and optimize your blood sugar as much as possible. From a performance standpoint, this is where it gets really fun. So if I just pick on marathoners, totally depends on the marathoner, age, uh, gender, the even the, the competitiveness. And I talk a lot about the competitive level because if someone is an elite marathoner going 210, 220, 230, right, versus us normal people trying to, you know, break four hours or break five hours, whatever it is, there are some differences because we know elite athletes process different types of substrates a little differently. But, but back to the performance, if you optimize blood sugar, and this is way, uh, the way I describe it, if, if you wake up in the morning, and you find that, wow, I'm hungry, right? I have a banana and I only use this. Not many people do, but I use it as just an example because marathoners actually use bananas and bagels quite a bit, right? So if I have a banana, when I first wake up, my blood sugar starts to rise. That's a normal response. The body will actually knock on the door of the pancreas. It will say insulin. We need some insulin. Why don't you swoop in, do your job. One of the roles of insulin is to reduce that blood sugar. Well, you don't want to be sitting with high blood sugar too long because, again, that's when really bad things happen from a health perspective. So from a performance perspective, if your blood sugar is high because you ate that banana, whenever blood sugar is high, insulin is high. What a lot of people don't realize, and this is actually basic biochemistry 101. You can look in in literally a a biochemistry textbook and, and learn this. When insulin is high, it significantly reduces the body's ability to burn fat. So what just happened, and and mind you, part of this conversation, we might get there, but mind you, there might be opportunities where we want to burn carbohydrates more and store fat, but not most of the time, right? Most of the time, athletes and marathoners want to teach our body to burn fat and thus store more carbohydrate. And there's more to this story, right? We only sit with about if, if you're a large male, you're probably storing 2,000 calories worth of carbohydrate in your body. If you're a petite female runner, 
that could be down to 1200 calories, right? It all depends on the size and the gender, really the amount of muscle mass, right? So why this is important, and I might be jumping the gun, but 2000 or 1200 calories worth of carbohydrate will give you about, will, will fuel about two hours worth of moderate intense running. And now here's the thing, Joe, this is different for everybody because I actually, I also also came up with a physiological testing protocol to measure metabolic efficiency and I've seen it all over the board, right? So, and we can maybe get into that too, but from a, from a performance standpoint, if you are chronically having high blood sugar and you have high insulin, you are consistently basically turning off your body's ability to burn fat. So you're storing more fat. And you're burning through your carb sources like, or your carb stores like crazy. And mind you, I've worked with a lot of high elite athletes, marathoners, triathletes, you name it, endurance athletes. Some of these folks do need to really have high carbohydrate burning. But for the, you know, the other 98% of us, we actually want to look at how do we actually burn more fat? control our carbohydrate sources, be able to actually store more of them. So when we need them, they're there, right? So if we're, you know, if we're trying to go up a hill, if we're doing hill intervals, if the last 10K of a marathon is, that's when you know you're going to try to give it your all. You want to have enough carbohydrate stores to be able to, to, get, to, to tap into those and to release them as energy when the intensity gets higher. You mentioned like a good fasting a good fasted blood sugar level is below 99 or so. Um, so if you wake up and it, let's take a normal healthy person, not pre-diabetic or anything like that, mm-hmm. what constitutes a spike or too high even mm-hmm. after a meal, whether you, whether you've had uh, the car, the banana and bagel, or you've had like the one-to-one ratio, right. what, what's like the range you would normally be looking at after yeah. any meal? It's, it's a little bit, it, it does depend a lot on the person because there's a genetic component of this. So even though they're not diabetic, uh, one thing that's on, on the side uh, that's really exciting in my field right now is the concept or the, the topic called nutrigenomics. So it's basically looking how nutrition affects our genes. And what we know, because we can actually do some testing, is that some people process carbohydrates or fat or protein much differently than others. Right. So while there is this ideal blood sugar range, and that's usually around 70 to about 120, give or take, um, that's about the range you want to stay in when you know you're controlling blood sugar well with food. But, but I, I have seen, uh, people a little bit higher because they are predisposed to not being able to process carbohydrates as well. So they're a little more what I call carbohydrate sensitive. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but if I can imagine, uh, you know, a response to what you're saying about the banana and the bagel being, well, I'm going to eat that two or three hours before my race or mm-hmm. before my training run. So wouldn't the, wouldn't the level have come back down to normal? Yeah. If, if you're looking at, so that's, that gets in a little bit more of the timing, right? So, so what I'm promoting with metabolic efficiency training, and there's a lot, lot to it, but during the day, you want to try to manage like a one-to-one or a two-to-one, remember that's carb to protein, ratio for most of your, what I call feedings, and you can call meals or snacks, right? Um, I, I should say this really quick because because people do take this out of context every so often. So let me just push the pause button. Sure. The hand model is about the ratio. It's not necessarily about the volume of food. So, so if I'm saying, Joe, I want you to eat a one-to-one hand-to-hand model for a snack, 
you'd be looking at me like I was crazy because that's a lot of food, right? And now, so, so keep that in mind. That's more of a ratio that, that optimizes blood sugar. So normally we need to dictate, hey, if it's a snack, it's maybe a half a hand or a full hand. Mm. Depends on the person too and their body weight goals, their body per- performance goals. I guess I'm wondering hours later when you're actually doing the activity, the marathon or the triathlon or whatever, if the blood sugars have come back down during the event, um, then what's the, how does the, how does the kind of everyday blood sugar management real, uh, translate into the training or racing, Mm -hmm. um, timeframe? Yeah. And it's a great, yeah, I gotcha. It's a great point. So, so you can certainly like have more of that four to one, three to one ratio throughout the day. But it, it, but remember what you're doing, and not from a well, I guess from a performance standpoint too. You're teaching your body how to go, how to burn through its very limited stores of carbohydrate and store fat. Right now, if you're not efficient at using fat at higher intensities, here's what's going to happen: if you have that higher carb to protein meal, snack, whatever, three to four hours beforehand, your blood sugar will come back down before you toe the line or, or hit the workout. But you've already facilitated a higher carbohydrate burning which means you go into that workout or into that marathon, that race with lower carbohydrate stores, right? So in the world of biochemistry, when you eat carbohydrate, it facilitates carbohydrate burning or oxidation, which means you have to quickly replenish that or else you, you, uh, we all know this from being runners, you hit the wall, right? That infamous, that bonking sensation. So that's the only one of the, the main negatives is if you eat too much of a, a higher ratio of carb to protein hours before, you're turning on your carbohydrate burning, you're turning pretty much turning off your fat burning, but you're just teaching your body to need more carbohydrates. Now, here's the, ex- not an exception, but I've actually had some athletes, I've worked with some marathoners who can handle that and they hit like goos and bananas, like all these super high carb uh, foods 10 to 20 minutes before their race and then they're totally fine. But remember this, totally fine means their carbohydrate levels are, they're not back to normal because it takes a long time to replenish those kind of, it's not like going to the gas station, filling up your tank of gas, but what they're doing is they're topping off their blood sugar, right? Unfortunately, these athletes who come into it with a high ratio, and then they feed these crazy high carbs 10 to 20 minutes before, they have to constantly replenish carbohydrate during that training run or during that race. And as we know with marathoners, usually we don't like to carry that much. We certainly don't want to introduce any any excess, excess calories. You can do calories, but excess calories may cause GI distress during that race. And that's that's the big issue. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this idea of turning on the carb burning response mm-hmm. and turning off the fat burning response uh, by virtue of what you're actually feeding yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um now there's this idea which I think is pretty well established um that naturally at higher intensities of exercises exercise your body prefers sugar versus fat as a mm-hmm. fueling substrate. Absolutely. So I guess the the question here is doesn't just running faster like when you toe the line and start the race doesn't that kind of also turn on the carb burning response just because it's a higher intensity of exercise than when you are resting beforehand and is does the does the balanced ratio before and help combat that mm-hmm. response 
It's a great question. So with, with that answer, I need to actually pull in physiology for one second. So we know like, like data research from the 19, I think it was fifties or sixties. They actually looked at that point where the body uses more carbs than fats at like what point of intensity. So is it, you know, if we talk about heart rate, if we talk about pace, but, but what they, what these researchers found was that between 63 to 65% max intensity, and that could be, that could be a VO2 max. That could be heart rates. What, I mean, you, you can pick your, pick your flavor, right? They found that that was the sweet spot or basically that was the point where the body started to use more carbs. However, there's a huge flaw in that. And that's, that's kind of where I came in. None of this research looked at nutrition. It all looked at aerobic exercise. So what we know, like when we do long runs and if you actually respect your long run and you do it slower, that actually trains your cells, your mitochondria to actually burn more fat. So we know aerobic exercise teaches the body to burn fat. However, I swooped in in 2003, started doing a little bit of, of playing around and, and actually a little bit of, of, you know, real life research in, in, in my lab with my metabolic cart. And I realized that nutrition changes made up approximately 75% of the body's ability to burn fat and at what intensities, right? So what you're saying is absolutely true. But here's what I've found in testing athletes for the past 20 years is some athletes don't have that cross, which I call a metabolic efficiency point. So some of them are such carboholics that they start out. I mean, you can, I'll use any example, but you start out maybe at a 10 minute mile, which is slow for some people, right? Uh, not so slow for others, but if it's a slow pace and they're still burning a lot of carbs, there's something wrong with that, which means during their marathon effort or even ultra, they're going to run, not run out. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to really, really deplete their carb stores, which is going to lead to glycogen depletion and bonking, right? I've also seen some athletes who have a wonderful, I call it textbook metabolic efficiency. So they may cross, maybe it's at 65% max intensity. Here's, here's the interesting thing to note. I have actually trained uh, athletes nutritionally to move that point, right? So I, and I've got so many examples that I can share with you, but um, I, and, and here's the exciting thing. I have proven this in real life that I can move that metabolic efficiency point basically from zero all the way up to 87% of an athlete's VO2 or max or heart rate. So remember what I, what I, I said earlier, 63 to 65 was the previous research. I have completely blown that out of the water because of nutrition interventions that focus on optimizing blood sugar. Here's the other exciting thing is through four years ago, 2017, there was a research paper that came out that validated what I was doing or what I have been doing for the past you know, 15, 20 years. And it, it had the same exact thing. It said, wow, that cross point that fat and carbohydrate cross point they found could happen up to 89% VO2 max. So now we've got research supporting it. We've got my real life data basically saying, if you can train your body to burn more fat, you can basically at a higher intensity, right? I can run a marathon, a three or four hour marathon. And I've had athletes do this on nothing because they become, except water, maybe some electrolytes, right? They become so efficient at running at higher intensities using fat that they literally need no carbohydrates. They don't even need to feed anything during that effort. Now, there is a time factor, right? We know like these professional marathoners, if you're going two hours and change, I mean, these guys and girls, while they probably don't need to eat anything, they are because they've taught their body to really burn well on carbohydrates and they need to, right? But for us average people, 
you can argue this, but a lot of people, I believe, a lot of marathoners these days, recreational marathoners and even recreational competitive, I believe are overfeeding because they're not supporting their blood sugar control going into the race. And it's not, it's not about the three hours before. It's really about creating this daily nutrition environment that supports that. And, and remember, daily nutrition supports the body's nutrient timing system, right? That's very, very crucial. So this idea of, and you actually said you've trained athletes nutritionally. So this mm-hmm. idea of thinking of nutrition as training. Yes. So this, uh, like for the example, going from zero to 87, and that, yep. just to make sure I'm on the same page, that means 87 is a percentage of maximum effort at which they're still using a majority of fat for fuel? Correct. Okay. So take an example like that or or whether whatever the number is you're trying to improve that number you're trying yeah. to improve the intensity at which you can use a majority of or higher and higher levels mm-hmm. percentages of fat okay right. so when we're talking about training to get to that point mm-hmm. is this something should we think about this the same way we think about aerobic or any other kind of training like it's a it's a long process and it takes time to get to that point. And then once you're there, can you fall away from that point by a few mm-hmm. bad meals or is it right. a quick switch that happens? What's the process of That's a making really, this change? It's an excellent question. And I, I always tell athletes, this is why I don't manipulate their training programs unless I am personally coaching them. Cause I said, I, I'm like, you know, you have a coach, you have a program normally follow it, right? It, there's methodical nature to that. If you're training for a marathon, on day one, you're not going to start running 20 miles, right? So, so it is a very methodical, long approach. Here's the really interesting thing about nutrition. The, the bad thing about nutrition is it is 24-7 unless you're sleeping, right? It is always in front of us. Nutrition is very psychological, right? There's a huge behavior component to nutrition, whereas with running, with training, you slap on your shoes, maybe your GPS, your heart rate monitor, you go out the door, you come back, you're done. Like you don't even think about it anymore, right? Maybe some recovery. With nutrition, unfortunately, you're in the kitchen, you're at work, there's a pantry, there's there's grocery stores, there's restaurants. This is the very, very unfortunate part of nutrition is that it's very difficult to do from a behavior change. The very positive thing is I have actually shown in, in, in my real life research in my lab with athletes, it only takes roughly, roughly seven days to change the body's metabolic efficiency. And I've taken basically that zero athlete like we talked about, and it didn't go up to 87%, but I think he was around, I think he was around like 60 or 65 and that was in seven days, right? So I, I say this very cautionary because because nutrition is such a behavior change, it is very difficult. Like, like for you as an example, Joe, if you were chronically eating like a four to one ratio of carb to protein and you said, Bob, I'm going to do this for a week and I'm going to go down to one to one just for seven days. I don't think I would recommend that because it is such a harsh change. So normally what I do is this is what I call carbohydrate unloading, right? So over a period of four weeks, I drop, I have the athlete drop the carbohydrates down each week until we find that sweet spot that but that allows them to live life you know have birthday parties go out with friends like whatever like you don't have to be it's not like that keto mentality where you have to count everything it's just basically um, representing a lower carbohydrate intake every single week so even though i say it can happen in about seven days I don't recommend it uh, only because personalities and behavior change usually do not favor that positive uh, change now 
that said to another of your points, if you have like, you know, if, if dinner tonight is, I don't know, you, you have a whole, like you have a, what's a great example, big plate of pasta with, you know, some, maybe some red sauce and very little protein. So it's really carbohydrate dominant. Is that going to mess up your blood sugar? Absolutely. But long-term that's not going to mess up your metabolic efficiency unless, and I've seen this happen, unfortunately in athletes, unless that precipitates the next meal or the next day going downhill even more. So that's where we have to kind of be careful. And there, I don't believe in cheat days. I don't believe in cheat meals. If you want to have something, have it, but try to, this is my, my, you know, saving graces for endurance athletes. Try to have a protein source with every single meal or snack. Like if you can actually think I'm going to have breakfast, where's my protein source? That goes a long way because we know carbohydrates will always be there and the fat is in the protein. But I think a lot of marathoners specifically always focus on carbs and they forget about the protein. And that's why we have such a disruption in blood sugar. If, if blood sugar is kind of the key here, um, uh, well, actually, let's go back to the, the types of carbs you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You said they should come from mostly fruits and vegetables and some maybe some whole grains. How, how much emphasis do you put on the glycemic index mm. value of carbs because um, the the quality matters. So how, how helpful do you think the glycemic index is and does it matter so much if you're having the protein with it? Does the protein kind of cancel out the mm. high blood sugar effect of certain carbs and yeah. And what types of carbs do you think are best on a daily basis? Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, it is very seldom, at least with my teachings through metabolic efficiency training, very seldom that anybody will have a carbohydrate by itself, right? That's just, that's that's not the goal. Like we always want to put a protein which has a fat in it to help balance blood sugar. So that said, when we when we look at carbohydrates and glycemic index, I think glycemic index has some very valid points. If you're diabetic or if you're pre-diabetic, absolutely, right? But in the, in the, in the normal population, athletic population, runners, marathoners, we are trying to put protein and fat with carbohydrates. So yes, to your point, that will, that will kind of, I don't want to say neutralize, but it will drop that glycemic index down. I put absolutely zero emphasis on glycemic index. So what I do is just more on the quality of food. So if you're going to choose a carbohydrate and this is going to sound bad, but there are strategic opportunities to use things like white rice, white pasta, white potatoes. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not bad mouthing them, but normally we want to focus on things like really dark green vegetables and and really bountiful color fruits like berries, like just, just really vibrant in colors with whole grains. That's, that's kind of on the fence. Some athletes are kind of sensitive to gluten. Some others are not. So I kind of go back and forth there, but from a whole grain perspective, I, I followed this rule and in, I would say nine times out of 10, it holds true. The darker the grain, the better, right? So basically we're trying to get people away from processed white refined starches as much as possible until we need to strategically utilize them. So here's the thing with things like white. So does that make sense from yeah, a daily sure. perspective? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even actually, let me get to that in a second, but here's a great example of why I don't utilize glycemic index. If you take, go back to that banana example, when a banana is ripe, it has a super high GI or glycemic index. When it's not ripe, so if it's a little bit green, it actually has a pretty low glycemic index. So it actually, for some carbohydrates like fruit, it does depend on the ripening also. <clears throat> and that's why I just don't, it, it just gets way too confusing with glycemic index. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you mentioned before, you're not into counting calories Correct. so much. 
Correct. Um, but it seems like when you get into when you get away from the processed foods and you get into the whole foods, yep. a lot of these more healthier foods are uh, lower have a lower calorie density. Mm-hmm. So do you find it hard for athletes to get enough food when they're doing this? Certainly. Yeah. It definitely depends on the person. Like, as you know, there's so many qualifiers here. If, if, a, if an athlete is trying to lose weight or change body composition, that's a whole different uh, ball game than someone just, just is like at a set weight. They're just going for performance. But yeah, to your point, sometimes it is very difficult to consume the, just, just the amount of energy but this is where this is where like strategic use of fat comes in very handy, right? So if you're using like olive oils and avocado oils, maybe some coconut oil and you know eating avocados and and if you're if you're eating just meat in general, right? There's some fat in meat. Typically, I don't have a huge issue with with having runners feed enough as long as we are actually not forgetting number 1 about the protein. Because remember, fat comes in protein and fat is very, very calorically dense, right? Sometimes I do have to have runners add some fat to their diet just from a calorie perspective, right? Because maybe they're at their carb and their protein, you know, I don't want to say max, but, but, you know, we're feeling good with that. But maybe, you know, this week is a high mileage week. Um, that said, usually all of their nutrition goes up, uh, pretty substantial or pretty sequentially. So, I, I would say 10% of the runners I work with do have that issue of feeding, uh, uh, not feeding enough, but the majority of them actually is the quite, quite the opposite. <laughs> that's yeah. why I'm still in business. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's something else I was wondering about. You mentioned like it's possible to reach metabolic efficiency within seven days or so. Mm-hmm. It's not a super long-term process, but what are the, what are the challenges that come? You, you mentioned, you know, just, kind of going cold turkey can be a quote harsh transition but are there any other even not just psychologically but any other like health related or um biochemistry related mm-hmm. struggles that come along with transitioning into this from someone who's on a super right. high, high carb diet the you know from a health perspective it all goes it's all good it's beautiful right from a performance perspective here's what we need to talk about cuz i have athletes who really want to jump on the ship and they're like bob I'll tell me what to do i'll do it right now even though i i'm a little concerned and i'm like well why don't we take it slow and they're like no 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 we want you like cold turkey right i want to do it like that's their personality so i help them through that but i always say the first 3 to 7 days are the most horrific dr- days of training right of training because if you think about it when you eat a higher carb nutrition plan, daily nutrition plan, it, it is an addiction. Like carbohydrates are an addiction because it's sugar, right? As you start, and this can happen with caffeine, it can happen with alcohol, like the first, usually the first week or two are pretty rough, right? And, and so the health benefits are great, but performance-wise, here's what happens. You're going to lower your carbohydrate stores because we're trying to balance out your blood sugar better, right? So at first, the first seven days, even though you're developing better metabolic efficiency, you're, you're definitely not going to want to do any quality training. So whenever I work with runners, I make sure that first seven days is all zone one, zone two, um, you know, basically throwing away their heart rate monitor, just going based on feel. They may feel a little cloudy in the brain, I call it, because they've taught their brain to run almost purely on glucose, which is sugar. As we reduce that and try to get the blood sugar under control, they may like cognitively, they just may feel like they're in the clouds a little bit more. And it usually only lasts for three to seven days, usually never longer than that. So I I do want to kind of put that, you know, warning label on that. What about 
during a marathon, like yeah. say you got your average runner, you know, um, n- does not have elite bottle service or anything. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, maybe they've gotten to metabolic efficiency, but they're at mile 16 or 18 or something and they feel like they need a little boost. Mm-hmm. And there's like Gatorade at an yep. aid station. Yep. If you're midstream in a marathon in the event, is is there going to be any negative effect to someone on this program who takes a cup of Gatorade during a marathon? Like there just may, something pure sugary? Yeah. There only may be one negative effect, and that's sometimes, not all the time, but I do want to talk about the lead up to this here in a second. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, because they're not used to a lot of simple sugary products, that may start to spark a little bit of GI distress. So they may have to look for the porta potty a couple miles in the future. It, every so often, like if you're talking, you know, if it's like mile 20, you could probably get through that last 10K for sure, right? But but let me back up for a second because this is a really important point that a lot of athletes just do not understand. Like they go, they'll go full keto and dev- and take that all the way through the marathon and they have a horrible time, right? Because they're like, what the heck? I'm, I'm metabolically efficient, but I, I didn't go fast. Well, with metabolic efficiency, as you know, Joe, there is a there's a uh, different levels, and that's the periodization of carbohydrate, protein, and fat that you go through. Right, that's the hand model. That's the one to one, two to one, three to one. So, if you came to me saying, "Hey, I've got a marathon, whatever, four, six, eight weeks out, um, can I be more metabolically efficient?" I would say, "Absolutely." Let's let's start with a two to one or a one to one, get you in that comfort zone. Do that for a couple of weeks. Then maybe we go down to one-to-one a little, little bit more aggressively for a week or two. But this is what's really important. You can develop metabolic efficiency better. So you can improve your body's ability to burn fat at higher intensities or faster paces, which is great. But you have to teach your body to actually utilize more carbohydrate in the few days or even a few weeks before the marathon itself. And, and the only reason, if I said this correctly, if that makes sense, the, one of the main reasons is because when you lower your carbohydrate intake in your body, you start to decrease the ability to use this enzyme complex. And I'm not going to get too biochemistry on you, but there's an enzyme complex that helps carbohydrates burn and do their job, right? When you're not feeding a lot of carbs, that complex kind of dilutes a little bit, right? which is totally fine. Like for health, it's fantastic, right? But for performance, usually in the week or two or a couple of weeks, depending on what time you're trying to get in, in the marathon or what performance, we actually need to strategically feed two to one or three to one. And I usually only do that surrounding the quality training session. So if you have like a, like a, let's call it a, a track workout or a hill session or a long run that you're trying to do some efforts, those are the ones that I would single out and say, okay, Joe, we need to feed a little bit more carbohydrate before those sessions to teach your body or really this enzyme complex how to metabolize carbohydrates better. So when you are on the course at mile 16 and you want to reach for that sport drink, it has no problem metabolizing it. Mm. Now, I, I don't, the sugar may, may cause some bad things, right? But your body would metabolize the carbohydrates easily. That, that's the biggest mistake people make when they either go keto or low carb, high fat, or even metabolic efficiency is they just, they don't periodize their carbohydrates. And you have to periodize your carbohydrates, especially as you get closer to marathon. You said something in there about, uh, well, a couple questions ago, you mentioned that a lot of times you don't necessarily, if you're not coaching someone, you really don't advise them at all on their training, just the nutrition. Correct. Um, so, you know, as much as you can speak to this question uh, or just in general terms, have you found that 
for runners generally, if they're working on metabolic efficiency, that they're able to do longer long runs more frequently because um, it seems con- and back to the kind of whole conventional wisdom thing. Mm-hmm. It seems like the conventional wisdom with marathoning is for for non elites, I would say more so than for elites. But there's this idea that you don't want to hit the wall in training mm-hmm. because it takes a long time to recover from that. There's a lot of dangerous, um, you know, things that could happen if you run out of glycogen. You don't want to, um, and you you don't want to interrupt your training. So there's this kind of fear to go past 18 to 22 ish miles in training. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like on paper, if you could safely go past that, it would have huge benefits for being able to. Come, you know, perform in a marathon. Like if you could get in some twenty-five to thirty-mile long runs. Yeah. So, do you have you found in your experience that metabolic efficiency helps runners do more longer runs, like in that in that range? Yeah, I, yes and no. I, I would say, aside from biomechanical deficiencies or inefficiencies, which we know, like some some people, you know, as a coach, I coach actually a lot of ultra runners, right? So I, I can speak to this, and I myself am an ultra runner. So if someone has a lot of biomechanical inefficiencies or some past injury states or whatever, you never obviously want to promote those high miles because their body will not recover from a from a biomechanical standpoint or from a physical standpoint. From a nutritional standpoint, anybody can run like that ultra distance and train ultra distance nutritionally, absolutely hands down. Because here's the thing when you in, in, in even it, it's all about, it's all about speed or effort, let's call it intensity, right? If I'm a, if my normal marathon pace is a eight minute per mile, right. And my long runs are done at a 10 minute per mile. I can probably train at a 10 to 11 minute per mile for 30 mile runs. And I'm completely fine because I have trained my body at that low intensity. And that's the key. Low intensity, you can actually train longer because you're not dipping in as much to your glycogen or carbohydrate stores because you're relying more on fat. Now, if I'm going to be a little bit dumb and I'm going to go out for a 30 miler at my marathon pace, that wouldn't be wise, right? Because that would I would be burning more carbohydrate. I would bonk. I would hit the wall. It would take me a long time to recover, not only nutritionally, but also physically, right? So a lot of this has to depend. When I work with runners, I always ask, you know, where are your training zones? Like what is a comfortable aerobic pace? And number two, when you're doing your long runs, are you actually respecting that, that pace or not? Because as we know, a lot of people, especially if they do group runs, that they're either higher or lower than they need to be, right? But they really need to respect either that heart rate or that pace for those longer runs. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but it is completely possible to go longer from a nutritional standpoint if they respect a lower intensity during those runs. Yeah, well, it seems like a uh, from people I've talked to on the podcast and a lot of reading I've done, it seems like a very, uh, very ef- effective training um, run for marathoners is to do a long run, you know, um, and that's a relative word long, right, but right. a long run, as long as you safely can at somewhere between like 85 to 90% of marathon pace. Mm-hmm. So if you can do 20, anywhere from like 20 to 30 miles at right. a little slower than marathon pace, right, right. is it reasonable to think that um, a metabolically efficient person 
could do that more than like once every three months or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I coach ultra runners, it depends on the time of year, of course, but as we get kind of into the really kind of out of base training and kind of more into that pre-competition, I mean, a lot of ultra runners and this, again, it's a little different than marathoners, but I'm talking like really hundred milers, not, not mm-hmm. 50 or 50 K, but they're, they're doing, I mean, back to back, usually Saturday, Sunday, what we call stacks every two weeks. Right. And those are usually 25 to 35 miles. Um, every each 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 day like each weekend day so completely possible and here's here's a little you know golden nugget i'll share from a nutrition perspective you can restore your carbohydrates that you've burned through within 16 to 24 hours right so that's really important to understand because if you do have that glycogen depleting workout it it only really takes you about a day to fuel up your tank again, right? So it depends on what you have, you know, again, from a nutritional perspective, you can fill up relatively quickly to go back to back long runs or even week to week long runs. I'm just like putting my coach hat on. I'm just always concerned with the physical, the biomechanical issues, because that's what really takes a toll on the body. Sure. So when you're working with a, uh, a marathoner, Mm -hmm. um, not an ultra marathoner, who's, Is it your feeling that most of them could be able to perform in the marathon at their, you know, goal marathon pace, not just jogging it Mm -hmm. with no, nothing besides water during the marathon? It depends on the time. Like once, once you get above that three, usually about three to three and a half hour mark, that seems to be the tipping point. So if you're going to race under that, it is highly likely if you've trained the body in, in training, right, nutritionally and physically uh, to adapt to metabolic efficiency and you've done the speed work, you've done all that, it is very, very likely to be able to do three, three and a half hours with nothing but water and electrolytes. Once you go over that, your pace would slow. So you can finish it, but your, place, your pace would definitely slow because that's like the, that's like the no person's land where your body says, if you're not going to feed me anything, I'm going to go slower, right? Mm-hmm. So that's usually the time where we see the feeding starting to to initiate. Three and a half, somewhere right around three and a half to four hours. So you're saying when you get faster than that, that's when usually it, you need. So what do you Absolutely. advise people in that range to do during a marathon? Um, yeah. What kind of products do you recommend or anything so, like that? Yeah. You know, marathoning is tough. Like it is so tough on the gut. And we all know from a blood flow distribution, whenever you, whenever you start running, um, any type of exercise, especially with intensity, the blood gets redistributed from the gut to the working muscles. So it's tough because you don't, you can't feed a lot because the gut, if you put a lot of calories into the gut, there's very little blood flow and you need blood to digest, right? Cause all the blood is usually in the legs and a little bit in the arms when we're running. So it's very, very tricky, which is again, why we want to develop metabolic efficiency from a product standpoint. And it, it certainly depends on the person. I've seen some, some marathoners, they can crack a great time with simple sugar products, sport drinks, gels. And it's just, it's, it, it amazes me because I'm like, wow, you have no GI distress. Your body can handle it. Um, others are very sensitive to that. I, I love, the, can I mention a product? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I love the product generation. You can, um, I've been a huge supporter of them because even though it's a carbohydrate, it is, it, they call it a super starch, right? So it's actually a non GMO corn starch that they cook with heat and water. 
And that changes the molecular structure, which just means this. This is the great news for marathoners. It empties the stomach very quickly, right? So that digestion is not an issue, but then it absorbs very slowly. So it, it's it's longer term energy. It's not like that initial jolt that you get from like a, like a uh, simple sugar gel or a simple sugar sport drink. So I would say 90% of the time I work with marathoners, the, the choice is usually generation you can. Every so often, I just get people that it just doesn't work for, right? And, and then we just have to kind of go back to the drawing board and find some type of, of concoction, if you will, that works for them. And for, like I said, people who don't have uh, individualized bottle service or anything like that, right. do, does gin, you can um, have some kind of gel or something people carry with them? It's so funny that you mentioned that. So traditionally they, they came out as a powder, right? And you had to mix it with water. And as you know, it's really tough to carry bottles uh, when you're, I mean, it's, it's doable. It just slows you down. Um, and then they came out with a bar and no joke, great timing uh, on when is April 1st? Is that Thursday? I think it's yeah. Thursday. Uh-huh. They're launching their gel, right? And so I got to beta test it a few months ago. Wonderful. Like it's, like it's so great because as we know, we, we want to stuff small things in shorts or pockets or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it come Thursday, they're going to have their gel on the market. Okay. Yeah. That is awesome yeah. news. I've actually heard you mention that product before. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, I'll be on the lookout for that. A lot of marathons starting to pop back up on the circuit exactly. later this year. So uh, exactly. people... Um, well, Bob, thanks so much. Um, we can wrap up here, but I had one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. I was, uh, on your website, looking through your bio and, yeah. and everything and the, the list of, uh, all these Olympic triathletes you've worked with and, yeah. and sailors and people from all yep. kinds of sports. Um, yep. I saw Meb Koflevsky's name on there. Yes, yes. Is there anything you can share about your experience working with Meb? Well, it, he, well, number one, I mean, talk about the most genuine, fantastic person I think I've met in, in this world. Uh, it, it would be Meb. I was introduced to him by a great friend of mine who uh, served as his kind of coach physiologist. And, you know, we, this was, this was when he was trying to make the, boy, what Olympics was it again? I can't remember. It was, it was back then, back in the days, but you know, he traditionally follows a very high carbohydrate diet, right? Because of his background. And, you know, I think a really important point is that that really works for him because, and I'm sure you've read studies on Kenyans and, and Africans, that's their genetic potent, that that's, that's really genetic. So you can't, you know, I guess as a, as an American, right? Caucasian or whatever, we don't, we don't act the same when it comes to these high carbohydrates, uh, you know, influxes because that's not how we were raised in that culture. So I, I guess, you know, number one, it was an awesome, um, opportunity to be able to guide him a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't too long, but just to be able to talk and, you know, introduce, I think I introduced, I started to introduce UCAN to him. He became a UCAN ambassador and athlete, but just a, a great genuine guy really at that point in his career, he was really looking to dialing in not only his training, but he was really looking at nutrition and what I call trying to, you know, unearth every rock he could to try Mm -hmm. to look at what could extend his career. And a lot of marathons are doing that or marathoners are doing that. We're seeing them in their late thirties, early forties, really trying to extend their career. I will tell you, I mean, aside from physical uh, recovery and, and training, nutrition is where it's at. And this is what he really emphasized and continued to emphasize throughout his, his, the remainder of his career. Yeah. This stuff is really um, game changing because, I mean, I, th- I think it's very easy for runners and any athletes to basically ignore nutrition and, and only focus on what they're doing in training as what's going to affect their performance. 
Um, so I appreciate you coming on here and explaining that a little more. So again, thanks again. We'll go ahead and wrap up. Okay. Well, thank you. This has been a, a fantastic opportunity. You were very comprehensive in those questions. I, and I, I feel like we really put, a, put, put the story together, kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. So hopefully your listeners can say, oh yeah, this is actually useful. Like I can start to utilize this in my daily plan right now. <laughs>